Good morning, everyone, and everyone who's joined us through the miracle of live streaming. Thank you for coming to this talk, and thank you for practicing together. This morning, I'd like to continue with our theme for the month of January through Zen Community of Oregon, which is vows. Investigating and clarifying and making our vows. It's very interesting when you begin to study vows, you can start to see everything through the lens of vows. For example, if you're studying Dharma, it's, it's very interesting to watch a movie and to consider what Dharma themes are present in that movie. For example, can you see the Four Noble Truths in a movie? Suffering and the end of suffering in the action of the movie. We watched a very uh, moving movie about uh, Greta Thunberg, the young woman who had this passionate vow that people, that she would uh, be witness, public witness, to the looming crisis of, or present crisis, of climate change. And um, very moving because this was very difficult for her. She had an eating disorder and so on. Um, and her parents struggled with, with her during that time to try to support her. Um, and then the diff- huge difference that she's made in, in the world. She's a beautiful example of vow. Suffering and then her dedication to trying to end, or, end that suffering in that movie. But it could be any movie. It could be an, like an Avengers movie. It doesn't matter. Can you see suffering as a theme and the end of suffering as a theme? And what does the movie put forth as the way to end suffering? You know, typically a um, kind of romantic movie is disliking someone at the beginning and then discovering that they're actually your soulmate and walking off into the sunset to live happily ever after. We love, or many people love, rom-coms. Um, but is that the solution to life's suffering? Or narrowly escaping death, a common theme in action movies. Is that the solution to life's suffering? Or is the solution killing all the bad guys except the one who will resurrect from ashes so there can be a sequel to the movie? Is that, is that the solution to suffering in the world? So it's very interesting to watch movies with that in mind, those questions in mind. When I was writing the book on vows, because I needed uh, material about vows, I started looking through the lens of vows and read people's biographies. I'd always been interested in Benjamin Franklin, but I hadn't read very much about him until I wrote the book on vows, and then I read a whole biography. It's fascinating. So the same thing happened a few weeks ago. I stumbled 
across a short video that was titled A True Story of Survival in the Arctic. It was in the news feed from Indian Country Today, which is a news service about indig- news about indigenous, indigenous people. And I thought, hmm. I put it aside because I thought it might represent what um, Shoto Harada Roshi calls the primary vow, the vow to live, the vow to keep on living during difficult times so that you can carry out your other vows. Difficult times are actually our best teachers if we can travel through them with the support of the Dharma and the Sangha and with don't know mind. It seems difficult at the time, but we don't know what the ending will be and what the benefit will be. So I remember, um, I don't know if I put this in the book or not, but I had, there was a nurse practitioner that I worked for, worked with for years at the pediatric clinic at Legacy Emanuel Hospital here in Portland. And he was a really wonderful person, so kind. Um, and so skilled in working with the patient, poor patient population that we saw, many people of color, Hispanic patients and so on, very poor often. Um, and he had a long-term relationship with a, a woman that we all liked. But then uh, one day he came in completely downcast because she had said that she wanted to leave him. And he was miserable, just miserable. Um, because this was completely unexpected to him. And, you know, I tried to comfort him as best as I, best I could with my usual, you know, we don't know what will happen. And just a few months later, he met another woman who was like 200% better for him. And, um, they ended up marrying. I did their wedding. And, you know, they've lived happily ever after together. <laughs> But it was, and I, I kind of teased them about, see, see, we never know. Sometimes the difficult times are our best teachers. But we do need the support of those who care about us, our family. Or our adopted family. I consider our sangha as an adopted family, our teacher, as part of our adopted family, a family that we choose later in life, a second supportive family. Often, people who contemplate ending their lives find a new life on the other side of a decision to go on living. And they're very grateful that they did. I, this, this was a striking story told to me by somebody who was a social worker at a facility for young people who had tried to commit suicide and who had um, blown off part of their faces. And she told me that they were so happy they survived. Every single one of them were happy they survived, even though they had survived terribly maimed. I, I, I couldn't comprehend it at the time. It was amazing. So this um, video, A True Story of Survival in the Arctic, is only nine minutes long, and it was made as a memorial to this young woman at the time, young woman, Inupiaq woman. It was made by a a young Inupiaq producer in memory of this Inupiaq woman. And it's the story 
from the 1920s of a woman named Ada Lutuk Blackjack. So she was raised in Nupiak, and she spent two years stranded as a castaway on an uninhabited island, Wrangell Island, north of Siberia, 300 miles north of the Arctic Circle. So you can imagine what the weather is like there. And actually one image in the, in the movie is after she lived through the winter, yet another winter, when the sun came up and just hovers above the horizon and how that flooded her with hope. So six months of these years on Wrangell Island, she was completely alone. She had been married. Um, she lived in Nome. She had three children, but only one survived past infancy. Her husband had abruptly divorced her, and she was completely destitute. She had no money, so she had to place her son in an orphanage, a young, young son. I think he was about five years old at the time. And in hopes of making money, she's only 23 years old at the time, she took a job on an expedition uh, that was to claim Russia's Wrangell Island for Canada. Um, it was, she was led to believe that she would be one of many Native people <clears throat> on the expedition, but actually that was only herself <clears throat> and four white men, three Americans and one Canadian. And they had all been handpicked by the person who uh, envisioned this expedition and financed the expedition. And they were handpicked for their advanced knowledge of geography and science, many of them, but some of them were academics. But one man had already survived five months on the same island after a shipwreck. So they set out and found their way to the island, and 18 months after they set out, they ran out of food. Because the land, which you can see in the video, is completely flat completely frozen, and completely barren. And they could not find enough game. They don't show her feeding herself, the actress who's portraying her. They don't show that part. But they do show her walking around this vast wasteland looking for little bits of driftwood that have been frozen and pushed up through the ice and collecting those and making a fire on the ice. So because they'd run out of food, three of the four men set out to cross the 700-mile frozen sea to Siberia for help and to find food, and they never returned. So Ada was left with one man who was suffering from scurvy, scurvy, which is vitamin C deficiency, if you don't get anything fresh to eat. And she nursed him until he died two years after they had set out on the expedition. So she'd been there on the island for two years, and now she was all alone. And she used her traditional Nupiat skills to survive in these unbelievably freezing conditions until she was rescued. The person who had sponsored the expedition eventually sent some people out to try to find out what had happened. And some newspapers called her a real female Robinson Crusoe after that 
story that hopefully people have still read in childhood about Robinson Crusoe, cast away on an island. She uh, had only the salary that she made on the trip and a few hundred dollars from the furs that she trapped while she was on the island. And she didn't benefit from the ordeal at all. She received nothing from the several books that were written about it. And she used the little money that she had to go back and take her small son out of the orphanage and take him to Seattle to cure his tuberculosis. And then eventually she returned to live again in the Arctic. This is, this is from Wikipedia, this last, these last bits. She was very quiet and hated the media circus that developed around her and the attempts by her rescuers to exploit her story. So she died in 1983. She was born in the 1800s. She, born, she died in 1983 at the age of 85 in the Pioneer Home, which is a retirement facility in Palmer, Alaska. And she was buried in Anchorage. I used to go lecture in Alaska and I actually saw this retirement home. And I partly I sought it out because one of our old Sangha members uh, left Portland after a divorce and went up to Palmer and uh, worked, or went to Anchorage where there's another Pioneer Home. That's the one we saw. Um, and worked there for a number of years. And the woman who, uh, from our sangha, who did that, had uh, a lot of her own distress in life, especially after this divorce. But she was able to set that aside when she worked in the Pioneer Home. And the Pioneer Home was um, set up for um, people who had lived in Alaska for much of their life. You know, there were criteria, but people who then had no uh, source of support. And so there was this, in, in the one we saw, there was a, it's a beautiful facility right on the edge of the water, a beautiful view. And this uh, woman from our Sangha who went up to work in the Pioneer Home said that she loved working there because there were people who were suffering more than she was. And they opened her heart and she was able to be there and work with them. So when we look at um, a story like Ada, Ada's story, and we're looking through the lens of vows, we ask, what was the vow that kept her alive? Certainly the vows of her ancestors, the vows to survive of her ancestors and all of the skills that she developed. One of the reasons they hired her as a seamstress was that they thought they would need clothing made from furs and that a native woman would know how to sew those furs together, to trap and sew furs together. She also had the vows that any parent has to ensure the survival of their and benefit of their children, to help her son live and carry on that ancestral line. So in the um, blurb about the little video, they say, an Alaskan native, Ada Delatuck Blackjack, is an example of perseverance, cultural resilience, and ingenuity. We're all Ada. Her struggle is ours. Surviving in the harshest climate, 
against all odds, and still we are here, said the producer, who's a young woman who's also in Nupiak, about how she felt compelled, this is her vow, to share the story of Ada. As an Alaskan native hero, So seeing through a new lens also happens when you begin studying white privilege and systemic racism, as we have been in our sangha. For example, the mob that invaded the Congress building. If you look through that lens, you may have noticed that this was a mob that that almost entirely excluded IPOC people, indigenous and people of color. Right away I thought, if this were 8,000 black people, what would have been the reaction? Would more protesters have been shot, arrested? There's no way I can know. But other people have raised in the news media the fact that there was so little reaction in the beginning. Was that part of white privilege? And in looking at those events, I like to look at those events very carefully from the lens of vow and suffering and the end of suffering. I saw a video of one, the one black man on the Capitol Police Force who was standing in a hallway as a crowd of white men in this mob burst their way through the doors that they had broken down and started towards him, obviously bent on destruction and violence, and they came surging towards him in a very narrow hallway. And at first he backed up, away from the mob, and then, I don't know if he had a weapon, I don't think that he did, because he bent down and picked up a stick that was on the floor, some kind of little black stick, and sort of held it up, and then he turned and ran up a narrow airway, a stairway, and then they followed him, and then the video ended. And I flashed on mobs of white men who have run down single black men and lynched them and wondered how he felt. But, and there's always a but, there's always more. And I found it, it turned out that he led them upstairs to where the house chambers were, which was their goal, but passed the main door into the chambers, which they ignored because they were so intent on getting him. And behind that main door was where all the congressmen, the house members were barricaded. Uh, so he led them past that main door where the, they were, the Congress members were hiding really in fear of their lives, if you read their accounts, in total fear of their lives, and into a corridor towards another door where they were met by a contingent of Capitol policemen and all ended up lying on the floor under police guard. So they all surrendered to the police that were there that he led them to. Very fast thinking, very clever. So we can also look at the entire event, the entire undertaking through the lens of vow. What was the vow underlying the politicians and also President Trump, of course, in encouraging the invasion and encouraging the violence? What was the vow of the mob, 
And of course, as you look through the videos, you see that some people were there just and got carried along by the, the mob and have now expressed their regrets. So each person probably had a different vow latent in them or overt in them. Like the QAnon people had overt vows about why they were there. But everyone in that group probably had a slightly different vow, intention. What was the vow of the Capitol Police? We saw the vows of the lawmakers who had sworn their vows to uphold the Constitution and to carry out a legitimate election and who returned that night to do their job and finish the election process. We saw their vow enacted. There was also another interesting story that illustrated vow in the midst of the chaos of the capital invasion. And this was a story that popped up on my news feed from Religious News Service. A story of Margaret Kibben, who is a 60-year-old woman who was three days on a new job as the first female chaplain to the House of Representatives. So here she is three days into her job. There's a great buzz because this is a very important event. And she began the day, as always the chaplain does, with a prayer that included words about America enduring in a time of great discord, uncertainty, and unrest. Also, her counterpart, the chaplain to the Senate, is Reverend Barry Black, who is the first black chaplain in Congress. So then the House members began their deliberations, and she sat down. She didn't even know where her, there was a seat designated for her, but she didn't even know that. She was so new, so she just picked a seat and sat down. And then, after an hour and a half, approximately, the word came in that the crowds outside had turned into a violent mob, and they could begin to hear the, the chaotic noise from the mob. And immediately, the House clerk looked, clerk looked over at her and asked if she could offer a prayer. And she said, I thought, well, I've been praying all along. So this is very interesting. This is a life of continuous prayer. This is a vow carried out through a life of continuous prayer. So, you know, as Buddhists, we have to consider what would be our version of that. If you've ever read Way of the Pilgrim, it's a story, an old story, I think from medieval times, of someone who undertakes a pilgrimage and a life of continuous prayer on that pilgrimage. It's a very inspiring short book, A Cloud of Unknowing. Which one is it? The Way of the Pilgrim. Mm -hmm. And the Pilgrim Continues the Way, says Hogan, who remembers the names of books and their authors. So that book was very inspiring to me in terms of a life of continuous prayer, but we have to consider what would be the, what would be the Buddhist version of that. And the best I've come up with so far is mindfulness. Is mindfulness, is really being present, 
really being present. And mindfulness brings with it a sense of mystery when we're really present and look deeply into what's going on in our life, moment by moment. A sense of mystery and a sense of gratitude, of deep gratitude, which to me are part of the great mystery. So she had previously served at the U.S. Navy's as the new as the U.S. Navy's chief chaplain. She's a rear admiral, whatever that means. I don't know. And um, she looked at it as an opportunity to do what she knew how to do, to offer comfort to people in crisis. So the story said that she was, she became aware, keenly aware of what was going on and the danger of what was going on as she moved towards the microphone to offer a prayer as the mob approached. And an aide handed her an escape hood. And if you saw pictures of what happened inside the house, they put on these plastic hoods uh, with a plastic window in the front, which are called escape hoods. And they were protective masks that were developed as a precaution in the aftermath of 9-11, the terrorist attacks in 9-11, to protect people from toxic gases. And she had served in combat, so she wasn't rattled at all. So she set the mask aside and she prayed. And she said, It was a matter of asking for God's covering and a hedge of protection around us. And as she was praying, part of her mind, you know how this happens, part of her mind remembered that this was all being recorded um, because they record everything on the house recorder that happens in the house. And then she prayed that in that chaos, the Spirit would descend upon the room to offer us peace and order, that we would look to care for each other even as we are under stress. So often, people who don't have mind training, people who don't have a spiritual foundation, people who don't have some foundation that helps them not turn wild under stress, are able to help others and care for others. So at that point, the Capitol Police came in and they began escorting the lawmakers and the House staff out of the room. And as people were concentrating on getting them out safely and leading them to a place of security, um, Kibben, Chaplain Kibben, began concentrating on the people. And she began doing what she calls working the column of people who were evacuating offering what comfort she could to anybody who needed it. She said, there were people of varying abilities, varying health conditions, and varying emotional states. My concern was to keep an eye on who was frightened, who was struggling, so that I could come alongside them. And there were a few who were under great duress. So she evacuated with them, working the column as she did, and then they were, they were put in a secure location, but obviously tension ran high because they didn't know uh, if they would be safe. And actually some of the staff members, this is in a different story, but some of the staff members 
<laughs> the, the story, this story said that here were people in a secure location under danger who had the best Rolodex in the world on their cell phones to try to call for help. So they just began calling anybody that was in their Rolodex that they thought could help. They called the FBI, you know, and so on. So this was going on. Uh, so people were uh, worried. Then they became worried that if they called out, the protesters could trace where the calls came from and would come to the secure location and find them and maybe murder them. They didn't know. So you can imagine how much tension there was. And, you know, they called the National Guard and so on. Everybody they could think of. And they were getting uh, updates on the status outside, the chaos and the violence that was going on outside, from the security personnel. And then she was asked to pray once again, and she began by reading Psalm 46. The same passage that she had actually uh, included in her prayer that morning, the opening prayer which says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea. So isn't that amazing that the, the passage that she used for the prayer that morning for the tension and just, you know, the possibility of some disturbance with some of the House members raising objections and so on and de demonstrations outside, that that same prayer had double meaning later. She then prayed for a covering of peace and shelter and lifted up prayers for those ransacking the Capitol. So this is what our practice asks of us, that we have compassion for everyone. We have compassion for President Trump, that we have compassion for people who are inciting violence and inflicting violence, for people who were killed, for the young woman who was killed who was a QAnon conspiracy believer, whose mother said, I don't know what she was doing there, for the Capitol Police officer who was killed because his head was smashed with a fire extinguisher, and he later collapsed, which medically means that he had a bleed. And those bleeds develop slowly, and then suddenly you collapse and die. She was praying for everyone. We have to have compassion for everyone in this kind of situation. Not easy to do. She prayed that those who felt so strongly against us might come to understand the lawmakers they decry ultimately want precisely what the attackers insist they were denied, that our legislative process is appropriate and legal and representative. And the story said that when she finished, the room was quiet. Then she engaged in what she called a ministry of walking around. So a life of continuous prayer is, is a ministry, but here's the ministry of walking around. So for us to contemplate that too, what does that mean? Talking to members of Congress, staff, and Capitol Police who appeared to be in distress. She said that it helped that she wore a clerical collar. 
Having not even completed her first week, she was meeting many people in the room for the very first time. So this is the value of wearing the clothing that express your vow, that demonstrate your vow, so that people who are in trouble can come to someone who has a vow that might help them. And this is why Hogan began wearing uh, Samoy, the Samoy, the jacket that we wear, with the white collar underneath, a number of years ago because we were talking to Harada Roshi, and he mentioned a story about Muman Roshi, his teacher, who was a very strong pacifist in World War II in Japan, which was a very dangerous position, actually. You could be executed, even if you were a clergy person. And um, who, after World War II, went to the islands where the Japanese had invaded and you know, caused a lot of destruction. He himself went there and offered prayers for the dead on those islands. And so uh, Harada Roshi was walking, this is after the war, with Muman Roshi, knowing full well that Muman Roshi was an ardent pacifist. And they saw someone in a soldier's uniform, and Muman Roshi said, isn't that wonderful? And Harada Roshi was really startled and said, what do you mean? And he said, "Um, he dresses what he believes. His uniform shows what he believes in, essentially shows his vow. So... We've been asking Harada Rishi about what should we wear, and he told us that story to tell us it's good to wear your Samoy so that you are visibly visible to people in need. And sure enough, when Hogan started wearing his Samoy, and I wasn't at the time, we would um, be in an airport, that's where I saw this most obviously, and People would see him and then kind of do a double take and watch him. And then some people would kind of edge their way over to him and ask, you know, why do you wear that? And sometimes they would have spiritual questions. And once when I was sitting in the airport in Asamoe and I was reading, a person came and sat, a man came and sat down next to me. And I could feel the question in him. <laughs> I could feel the need in him. So I just, I looked up at him and he said, um, I can't remember if he said, because other people have said this to me, do you do martial arts? <laughs> I said, no. He said, what, what, is, what is this you're wearing? And I said, I'm a Zen priest. And then immediately he began asking me about practice and about spiritual questions. So Harada Rishi was right. So back to the story of Chaplain Kibben. She said she worried little about her own safety. Instead, she felt something she hadn't experienced since her time in combat, when she had experienced it before, a sort of spiritual covering that allows her to be present for others. And then the story goes on to say, emotional and spiritual wounds from the attack will take time to heal because people, some of these people will suffer from post-traumatic stress. And many are in mourning. The chaplain has been especially attentive to the Capitol Police, who lost one of their own. And she has looked for and deputized those who, deputized in quotes, those who insist that they are fine to help keep a lookout for others who are struggling. She said, I feel very privileged to be here in this time, 
and that it is my first week. It doesn't faze me, but instead it actually confirms why there is a chaplain here in the house and why that's so important. It's not related to a particular faith tradition, is that there is somebody here who comes alongside in this moment. That word alongside is very critical in the, in the Christian tradition. To accompany, to accompany, to come alongside and accompany. And our version of that would be uh, framed in, in my vow to continue on the path to enlightenment, to awakening, so that I am able to help others learn how to end their own suffering. So that's what accompanying is. I can't end another person's suffering. And neither can she, but she can accompany. And she added, faith matters. It mattered on Wednesday, it matters today, and it will matter tomorrow. When we clarify our life vows, the work of that vow comes forward and finds us. Maybe not as dramatically as in this story, maybe never put into a story, likely never put into a story. But if we clarify our vows and we do the work and the education and the training necessary to fully engage those vows, our life will be of benefit in this world of constantly arising suffering. So I encourage you all to continue to study during this month, study vows. And because vows change with our life circumstances, in that study we look at the past vows that weave the fabric of our life, have woven the fabric of our life. And we often start out with uh, vows of our, of our youth, you know, the vows of a Girl Scout that I took, or the vows of the 4-H vows. I pledge my hands to greater service. I pledge my heart to greater loyalty, and so on. You know, those vows, especially when we take them in childhood, really lodge in there and then manifest later. So vows change with our life circumstance to renew the work of clarification regularly. That's very important. That's why we've come circle back to looking at vows in depth again. So please, learn about vows and do the work of clarifying and then engaging your vow or allowing your vow to come forward and engage you. Thank you.